0: Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, happy Thursday to you. Uh, you do have a not-so-reasonable substitute for Sandy Wilson. I, I did talk to him uh, yesterday afternoon, and while his body uh, may be weak at the moment, his mind is not. Uh, we had a nice conversation, and he uh, told me what, uh, what's going on here and said, You do whatever you want to. And then he proceeded to tell me what it was that I wanted to do. <laughs> I'm just kidding; that's not true. He uh, he did uh, give me a little uh, insight into to what you're uh, thinking about this spring, uh, winter, and spring. And and I wanted to pick up on that about the. He said we're really looking at the the threefold ministry of Jesus: the preaching, teaching, and healing ministry of Jesus. The the, the call to to, to live as we just sang as a faithful follower uh, of Jesus. I, For a long time, I was a fan of Jesus's. And, uh, you know, I thought that's really great and good for you and all that. And, and uh, you know, I could do the Jesus cheers like everybody else, sing the songs, but I really uh, probably was not at a place in my life where I really understood what it meant to be his faithful follower. And... And that's a life process. I mean I, I think that that he calls us and we listen. Uh, it, it's interesting if you go read the the uh, f- the four soils in uh, Matthew, it, it describes three of them and and three of them are not productive, and for various reasons, and at this moment we won't go into that. but it's very interesting to look at the good soil and it's very clear. What makes it good soil? All four of the soils they it's described when Jesus explains this that they all hear, they all hear all four of these receivers of the of the word hear, and then we know you know part the the world and the rocky places, but the good soil the very interesting uh, thing is it says and they understand, they hear. And they understand. And so I, I've thought about that and I said, Lord, you know, help me to understand. When I read your Bible, I, I, our plea, I think, as is men, as is, is his followers, is, Lord, please help me understand what I'm reading. And I, I want to be good soil. The, the desire of my heart is to be good soil. I, that's what a faithful follower of Jesus, that's what I think I need to be praying. Lord, when I read your word, help me understand it. Give me insight to, uh, your Holy Spirit and awaken my mind so that it's not just words. It's not just my duty to get up every morning and take 15 minutes and read it. No, oh, I've got that done. Check it off. I want to understand it. It's amazing to me, the Scripture, because I can read a verse, and I go back and read it a month later, and it's like I never read it before. Have you had that experience? You go, whoa, wait a minute. How did I miss that the 14th time I read it? And so it's beautiful that the Scripture, by self-proclamation, says it's alive and it's active, and it's the Word of God. It's Jesus speaking to us. And so when we approach this, I think we should approach it with a prayer. Lord, please help me understand what I'm reading. Help me. I want to be good soil. So with that in mind, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 17. And we want to read a little bit there. And I want us to think together about this. The question that's, in one sense, is followers of Jesus in this Time and this place is what is our destiny? That's a big question. But I think it varies from person to person, but what is our destiny as his followers? What are we supposed to be before him as we follow him? Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world... having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said. Let me pray. Lord, we've just read these words. We've heard them. We've looked at them. I pray that you'll help us to understand them. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting there that if you read it, I read this and it jumped out at me. I read it in the King James Version years ago. And if you go down to verse, uh, to verse, uh, let's see, 26, the kind of the B part, it says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place now I read that once and it said that the bounds of their habitation the exact time the precise time and the bounds of their habitation that bounds has to do with the fences that God has fences that he's set up for us the question before us today is if if we are called to be faithful followers Do you and I believe that God has placed us in this time, at this exact time, and in this exact place? Do we believe enough of the sovereignty of God to say that God has placed you this very morning at this place, but He also set you in Memphis, Tennessee, whenever He puts you here, and it's not a mistake. It's not that He didn't think about it. According to this Scripture, He has put us here. He has set the boundary. He knows the hours. He knows every breath. We read up there, life and breath and everything. Do we really believe that that's how God superintends our life? Do Do we wake up in the morning with the confidence that God has set before us a day and that we are to follow Him, faithful followers, in this day? That your work that you're doing is God ordained. Whatever our hand finds to do, do with all our heart, as unto the Lord, and not unto men. That your job is is given to you in God's time, in His place, for you to do His will. In that in that in this day. Do you believe that? Do we do we believe as men? who have been given responsibilities for businesses and families and circumstances, leaderships and churches, do we really believe our destiny has been set by God? That we are called to, to this city and this time and this place. Do we believe that? It it took me a long time to to come to that and and to realize it and to realize that God had called me to do something other than drive down Union Avenue every day to my office and try to make a lot of money. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. But the, the question is, do we believe that we have been called by God to this city and this place? That the preaching, teaching, and healing ministry is more than on Sunday morning. That we're called to live out the gospel as His faithful followers in this nasty now and now. Not just look into the sweet by and by. We're called today. I don't care if you're washing bottles or running a company with 10,000 employees. Do we believe our destiny has been set before us? That God has established the exact time and the exact place. He's put fences up and he said, this is where I want you. If you remember, Dag Hammarskjöld was the, the secretary general of the UN from 1953 to 1961. John F. Kennedy said he was the greatest statesman of the time. He was killed in an airplane crash in going to the Congo to try to resolve a conflict. Some people believe he was actually assassinated. He wrote one book, it really wasn't a book. It was his personal reflections called Markings. It was not, it was not published until two years after he died, 1963. In that, he, it was his personal reflections about what God had called him to do. He was an evangelical Lutheran, I believe, and he was a committed man, a follower of Jesus, and he lived out his life as the secretary general. He was the prime minister of Sweden. Let me read you something he said about his destiny. Dedicated, for my destiny is to be used and used up according to thy will. Let me read that again. Listen carefully what this man wrote. For my destiny is to be used and used up according to thy will. He also said this. We are permitted, we are not permitted to choose the frame of our destiny, but what we put into it is on us. so what he 's saying there is we 're not permitted to, to to choose the time and the place, but what we decide in our hearts to do with what we 've been given is up to us so we we find ourselves in a in a city here that that I rode downtown for in the early eighties I'd ride downtown every day and I'd ride down Union avenue and I had this and and I know now that it was it was God this voice inside of me literally not every day and it wasn't audible it wasn't but it was the question who is your neighbor I'd drive down union I'd, well mr Doolittle you know he lived next door fine man he just every time I' Started working around the house. Mr. Doolittle showed up with tools. His wife was a great cook. They had lunch. I thought, that's my neighbor. I like him. He's great. Wonderful man. Wonderful Claude Doolittle. He was my neighbor. But I kept driving down Union Avenue, and that question would not go away. It was for over a period of time. And finally, what God spoke into my heart is, you've got neighbors on either side of Union Avenue, south and north of Poplar, that you have no idea what they're like. You have no knowledge. There happened to be African-Americans who I furthermore didn't care about. Had no desire. I was busy, man. I'm I'm success, driving my Mercedes. But God called me. He said, who's your neighbor? And I kept getting that question. And finally, I realized that I knew nothing about my neighbors. And I set out on a journey, self-guided as best I could at that time to go find out something about my neighbor's. And I began to do that, and as I did, I began to have relationships that I didn't have any idea. I began to know people, that, and I began to slightly get an insight into what the issues were in this community, and I began to think, God, what do you want me to do about this? What would you have me do in this? And it was, uh, it was uh, about 1996, and uh, right after Sandy Wilson had come to Memphis, and I had three children. They were eight, six, and three, and it was just great to, for us to get to church and have my pants on straight and the buttons done right. It was everything we could do to get there and show up with smiles on our faces. And I'll never forget, it. I think it was in January, and it was one of those clear January days in the sanctuary over here, and, and Sandy spoke on Jeremiah 29. If you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read something. And it was a showstopper for Larry Jensen, I, I mean, it was like I, was, I had no mindset for this. I was just glad to be at church and, and my zipper was up. And he read this and preached on this that morning and my life has never been the same. Jeremiah 29. And we'll start in, um, in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. Now watch this verse. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Let me give you just a little background to this. And this was King Nebuchadnezzar. The exiles were the Jews. This was the leadership class of Jerusalem that had been taken from Jerusalem over to Babylon. They were not there by choice. They were not there because they said, oh, we're going to move over to Babylon and live. They were there because Nebuchadnezzar had come in and he had taken the leadership class out of Jerusalem and taken them into captivity. And he took them there, and you can go back and read in chapter 24 because they wouldn't listen to him. You you can read it in the first of chapter 24 why they were in captivity, but that's where they were and God had ordained it and he sent them there for his purposes. They were exiles. We, according to the New Testament, are aliens and foreigners in this world. We are are strange people. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're strange. Yet, Jesus said, get in there and be engaged in the city. He says, if you look at his, his, uh, His way of life, I've been to the Holy Land a few times, to Israel and Jordan. And if you know anything about it, there he was in the north part up around Galilee. That's where he Capernaum sits at the very top of the Sea of Galilee. And that was his headquarters. And it was a crossroads from the so people were coming through there. He was in a in a, a dynamic community that had people coming from all over the Near East and that's where he set up. Well, when he would go to Jerusalem, it was a pretty, it, you know, he didn't get on an airplane and fly down there. He had to walk. And I think it's about maybe 60, 70 miles. There are three ways to go. You can go down the Jordan River Valley, which is pretty easy, and then you go up to Jerusalem from there. You cut the Jericho Road. You go up to Jerusalem from the Jordan River Valley. Or you can go over to the, to the west and go down the plain that was along the sea. That's a second way. The third way you can go is you can choose to go through Samaria. And if you watch Jesus, he made a choice to go through Samaria, which was a land of of people that were not acceptable to the Jews. They were half-breeds. They were unclean. They were not people that were attractive, that were part of their social structure. They were people who were outcasts and not well-received in any decent circles. And yet Jesus, in His ministry, would make a, a, a choice to go through there. We know the story of the woman at the well. We know the story of how He approached it, how He speaks to us this very day about where our paths should be in life. He made a willful choice to go that way. It would be easier to go another way, but he made a choice to go that way. And so when you you study the life of Jesus, you begin to really see that this this was a man who was intentional about the way he lived out his daily ways. When we read this Scripture, it says here, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray. Notice the order of this. Notice the order. Normally, I would go, well, I'm going to pray for the city. I'm going to put that on my prayer list. All right? Every day, God bless Memphis. I just hope, God, you do something. These people, they got so many things, and... Gosh, it's just, it's really a lot of big problems in the city. I don't know how anything's ever going to get done around here. It's just, it, 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 I don't want my kids to stay here. You know, I had a guy a few years ago who asked me, he said, You know, you know would, you, would you help me with my kids? I, I really, they got grandkids and I'd really like for them to come back to Memphis. And, and I, I was so tempted to say, You've been bad in Memphis t- for 20 years. And now you want me to help you figure out how to get your kids back so you can enjoy your grandchildren. So they're not in Washington or Atlanta or wherever it is. I was, I didn't, I wanted to. The question is, is have we been called to the city? Has God, has God called you? Has he? Do we believe Acts 17 where it says, I've established the, the boundaries of where you are. I've given the exact times. So I've got something for you to do in this city. And here's what he, he wants us to do. It says, but seek. It's interesting. The order there is not but pray and seek. It is seek and pray. To me, that was what was just startling when I heard Pastor Wilson. It was like, this, it was, Larry, it's time to get up off your spiritual rear end and see what I'm doing in this city. Will you follow me in this? Will you, will you get up off your rear end and follow me in this city? i put you here. It says, but seek the welfare. That's the shalom. That's a very rich Hebrew word. It's not just it, it. It's kind of the the word that comes out that we would best understand it is commonwealth, commonweal, the the this the whole piece of the community, the the well being that we as followers of Jesus are to seek the well being of this community. Yeah, but we got so many problems. I mean, you know, the, how do we ever oh and and oh the leadership and. Oh, it's just so, I just don't, I can't. That ought to get us excited. You know, Methodist Healthcare Foundation, I I happen to serve on the board, they have chosen 38109 to go in and really poor activity. 38109 is the worst zip code in Memphis. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be going, give us the big problems. They're ours. They're, that's the heart of Jesus: is is to to find the least, the last, the lost, the losers, the, the all of the folks, and not to do this in a paternalistic or. But at the foundation of this is relationship. How many of us have meaningful relationships with people that don't have the same skin color that we have? Have you had them into your house for dinner? Have you gone have out? Have you sought out relationships? The, the, the Scripture tells us that, that they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. You, I, the, let me tell you what the grand discovery for me personally was in this journey. Was that I have brothers that are African American who love Jesus more than I do who were His followers, and the grand discovery for me is having those relationships. And I cannot tell you how much it has meant to me to get to know these guys. And to find they're right here, a mile from here. And I went through life with none of those relationships, huddled up in my little comfortable place, not willing to say, Lord, what would you do for me to seek the welfare? It starts with relationships. And, and I would challenge you men in this room to, and this is going <laughs> to be a lot of African-American guys that are going to hopefully start getting some calls to build relationships with your peers. You have peers that are African-American. Let's get out of the paternalism mentality about this. There are men and women who are followers of Jesus, who are Hispanic, who are, who are uh, African-American, And we need to take a leadership role and build relationships first because out of relationships will come activities. We tend to go in. Here's the basis of it. Uh, We're we're mostly Caucasians in this room. Got one brother? One brother. Any more? Oh, two. You guys don't listen to this just for a moment. I'm talking to these... You know what white people want to do? Program. Let's do a program. You know, you know what African Americans want? Relationship. We got to get in a mentality that we are following Jesus. Look at what he did. Well, I'm going to go down to Samaria. We're going to set up a new program. I'm looking for a woman at the well and we're going to have a new program down there. Well evangelism. Anybody that comes to the well, we'll share the gospel with them. What did he do? He went down there and he got to know the one. He knew everything about her. And all of a sudden, he she, look, he knew everything about me. Relationship. And she said, oh, come on, and you've got to go visit with everybody else. He knows everything about me. Relationship. Do we have a priority in our hearts and our minds to have relationships that get us out of our place and our little zone and our little comfort out here with the walls we live behind and are we willing to do that? I think the other thing we that we have to understand as we follow Jesus is that we have a responsibility in this community as leaders. To, to know the facts. I can't tell you how much ignorance I hear uh, going around this city and, it, and people talk to each other and they keep propounding ignorance. Like they know. Uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And, and I would encourage you to do your own homework on this. Don't trust me, do your own homework. Go to the FBI Crime Statistics. They're online, Google it, FBI Crime Statistics. And I want you to look at the, the murder rate per 100,000 for major metropolitan cities. Now, most of you in this room would say, oh, Memphis is, is right up there at the top. I know we're the worst. True? If you go look at it, what you'll find is that New Orleans is 72.8 per 100,000. And a bunch of people, are, their kids are going, living in Washington. Washington is 21.8 or 9 per 100,000. And Memphis is 13.2. Let me give you another example. Oh, Memphis is the, post oh, it's just so, the poverty here is so terrible. And it is, and it's grinding, and it hurts. But we're not the only metro city in America that's got that problem. In fact, we're really kind of in the middle of the pack. Charlotte, it, 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 the 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 measure done by the Brookings Institute is the level of impoverished families in a community. Memphis is like 40.4%. That's terrible. It's terrible. But Charlotte's 39.8 and New York City's 41.4. Birmingham is 40 is like four basis points below us. This is a national problem. I think if you look around here, and many of you have been involved in this and given your hearts and your lives to this, Memphis is way ahead of the curve on addressing a lot of this. And I, can, and I know this because I've had people in from Buenos Aires and from Dallas who walk away from here after two or three days and go, this is astonishing what you are doing, what the church is doing in this community. And when I say church, I'm talking about the body of Christ. The the mission that's going on in this community, I could take you for a day. And there are a number of people in here who are in the heart of it. And there are things going on. That doesn't mean we quit. That means that the church is motivated and we are addressing issues and things in this community. Let me give you an example of something. We could, any of you been to 201 Poplar? Any of you been there overnight? (laughs) I never been overnight. (laughs) I visited there. 201 Poplar is our jail for those of you that are new to town. You don't want to go there. But let me tell you about that. Today, if you go down there, I see, I see another brother in the back there. 2,400 plus or minus inmates there on a daily basis, okay? 95% of them are African American. This is every day, 95%. What's interesting about it is that somewhere north of 90% of those guys do not have a high school education. And what's even more interesting about it is that about 70% of them, plus or minus, have some kind of learning disability. Now let me tell you what happens. They get to the fourth grade, and they realize that they're struggling to read. And in their environment, there's nobody who, when my kid has a learning disability, man, I'm in, I got them in the car and we're headed to Bowie or to to Bodine or Christian Psycholot, wherever to get them tested. And we spend thousands of dollars on my kid, which you should do. I'm not to find out about their learning disability. And we get counselors around them and we help them and we encourage them and we sit and read with them and we help them and so on and so on. And what happens down on Looney or down on on Macklemore is that kid gets to the fourth grade. There is no one there who steps into that gap. And that kid gets discouraged, he can't read, he gets to the 5th grade and it's not any better, he gets to the 6th grade and people start saying to him, you're stupid, you're a retard. And he gets to the 7th grade and the 8th grade and I'm telling you, you can get the numbers and look at them and it looks like a rocket taking off how kids drop, the, the, they drop out of school in the 8th grade. It looks literally, it goes along like this and then it just goes like a rocket, straight up. A few years ago, I was asked to to do the capital fundraising for the Boys and Girls Club. I didn't want to do it, but they came, and I had some pressure put on me from somebody, and I agreed. I said, but there's a condition I'm going to do this on. I want to know the extent of this problem, and I want to know who's doing something about it. And here's what I discovered. We can't do that. I said, well, you don't understand. I'm not going to do the capital fundraising until you do this because I'm not walking into CEO and going, give me a million dollars and not be able to say, here's the problem. Oh, we we can't do that. I said, you didn't understand. I'm not doing this until you agree. Finally, they agreed. And then I said, and furthermore, once we define this, I want to get all these people together that are doing this in the city and I want to talk to them all. Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, well, you don't understand. (laughs) I'm not doing this until you do. So we went through some pain and and birth in that, and and what uh, what we determined is this. The Boys and Girls Club has been tracking this for years. Here's what they know. They know that if they get a kid in their program for five years, okay, I'm going to tell you how we empty the jail. I'm getting ready to tell you how we can empty 201 Poplar in 10 years. You, You doubt me on this. Here's how you do it. 95% 95% of the kids that go through the Boys and Girls Club get a high school education. They're in their program, five years, they get a high school education. And what I did when I, when I found out that, I started calling Ma'am and Streets and Neighborhood Christian Center. And, all, and, I, and I called all of them and I said, let me ask you a question. What's your percentage of high school graduation? And every one of them said, somewhere 90 to 100%. I thought well that's interesting and I began to 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 study this a little bit more and what 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 I determined is, is that if 95% of the guys in 201 do not have a high school education and 95% of the people that go through the 16 programs that I identified, there are more, that, that would be called at-risk kid programs, if 95% of them go through and they get a high school education and many of them go on to college, what would happen? Now, what I also determined after this study was there are about 150,000 at-risk kids in this community about 150,000 and we did some real rough research and essentially the the outcome of it was that about 40 to 50,000 of those are getting some kind of regular touch by one of those organizations and i'm talking about on a weekly basis so that means there's 100,000 kids in this community today that are not getting, at-risk kids, that are not getting some kind of touch by one of these. Now, we've got education going on. We've got charter schools. There's a lot going on. All I'm trying to make the point here is, is that there are, there's some number of kids out there that are not being touched. Most of the work that's being done in this area is by faith-based stuff, most of it. Okay, so what would happen if we as the church... If I was the king, this is what we would do. I'm not the king. We would set out on a mission, and we would scale up those 16, 20 organizations, and we'd figure out a way to touch every kid in this city that's at risk, and we would intervene in the fourth grade when they can't read and figure out how do we get them into a... Boys and Girls Club, Ma'am Streets, whatever the program is, and stay with them through that process. And I promise you that if we got 150,000 kids graduating from high school, they would have some sense of of care, somebody loving on them, somebody telling them, you can be something, and you would empty, you would stop the pipeline into 201. Does that make sense? That's doable. That's what it means to, in my mind, to, when I, but seek the welfare of the city. Isn't that one place where the welfare... That's a bunch of kids. J- James 1.26 says, the measure of your religion, the measure of it, is what you do about widows and orphans in their distress. Well, let me define that. Could it be... That in a society, in a city like Memphis, where the poverty rate is what it is, that, that these young girls who are 14, 16, 18, that by the time they're 30, they got three or four kids, could we define those as widows? Now, they're not technically, in the sense, a widow, but in the sense that they don't have a husband, they don't have it, that, that for whatever reason, well, they need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Really? Is that the way Jesus died? I, I, is that biblical? Bootstraps. I, I, Google that and see if bootstraps is in the, in the Scripture. I don't think it's going to be. So could it be that those are widows and their children are technically, though not technically orphans, they are orphans. The measure of your religion is what you do about widows and orphans in their distress. How's our religion working for us? This is one place where we could... And and we seek it. We don't just, oh, Lord, bless the children, help them. No, we are called. We're doing this already. We're doing it. We're doing it. It's not like we're not doing it. We are. But let's let's decide, as the body of believers, we're going to touch 150,000 kids. It's doable. It's not pie in the sky. It's doable. But see... The welfare of the community. Let me, many of you know Tony Campalo. And I mean Tony Campalo's a he's crazy, but I love to hear him and he is so challenging in his, you know, he's a professor at Eastern University up in Pennsylvania and he's a tag and he just talks like this. He was over at the, the, uh, uh, the Wilson's deal they have, their family deal. And he spoke, this was a couple of years ago, and it was at lunch, and I'll never forget what he said. It was like he, he raised his hands up in the air, and he says, there's really only two things people need. There's only two things people need. Only two things. Jobs and Jesus. Jobs and Jesus. And if you think about that, it really is true. That in order for us to, to, to see a change in this community for the kingdom, to see the gospel work in this community, that's what we need. Well, in order to get jobs, you've got to have education. You've got to, have, you've got to catch these kids before they get into the, to, to the pipeline. Oh, by the way, and what happens to the kid when he drops out? He goes to a gang often which happens to be a form of family life. If you haven't ever heard Delvin Lane speak, he's the guy that is at streets. Many of you know him. <laughs> remember, you remember the blind side? You remember the bad gang leader in the, in the movie? You know, the really bad dude? That's Delvin. That's who he is. And he's down running streets on Vance right now and doing a wonderful job. But the point is, he t- and you gotta, ought gotta to hear him, he says, I knew I was going to die. No, I was dead, and I, had to, I was afraid to die. And so he began to follow Jesus, and he's making a difference in the lives of kids today. He is seeking the welfare. But we got to get where we as followers of Jesus understand that our mission in this community and your job is to help create jobs. That's a high calling. It really is a high calling. Part of what I've done, and I want to spend the last few minutes talking about this, a few years ago, I started asking myself, "Well, what 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 is Memphis?" Now, what you see up there is uh, you see the center. That's the thing that's on your bag tag when the airport when you get come in, and and the inside outside circle are the things that we're known for around the world. And I've traveled a, a fair amount with mission stuff out of this church. Been in you know only continent I think I have been in is. Uh, is Australia. And, I, and I, so everywhere I go, I, I'm, it's not 15 minutes, so you're on the ground of a country, and oh, Memphis, Ellis. And then right behind that will be barbecue. And then right behind that will be uh, uh, FedEx, and then St. Jude will come. But these are the things that we, we're known for outside. The center ring, which is this right here, are the assets that we have. And I want to talk to, I can't cover all of them, but I started going, how do we create jobs in this community? What are the things that we need to do as leaders? And I, I read this book. Have any of you read this book? I would encourage you, there be a rush on the, on the uh, store. To, I would encourage you to, uh, to get this book. Jim Clifton is uh, the ch- chairman of the Gallup organization. He spent... I think it's about 15 years doing the study on, uh, that, that, uh, that are resulting in this book. What he says is that there, and this is not all he says, but he says there are 100,000 people in the United States of America who are going to make a difference whether or not we compete with China. And he goes into great teal to talk about it. And he says that what we have to do in a community... This guy's this isn't a Christian book by any means. Uh, I don't know where he is spiritually. It doesn't really matter. The point, it does matter, but it doesn't matter for this discussion, is that that this coming jobs war is not coming. It's here. The Chinese intend to win this. And what he says is there are a hundred people in a hundred cities that are gonna make the difference whether or not we compete globally. And it's not politicians, please don't count, don't ask your politicians to lead this, they won't do it. I love them, but it's you that's gonna make the difference. It's us standing up and saying we are on a mission to create jobs in this community. And we create jobs and if we follow Tony Campalo's advice, that's gonna help because we're going to create all kinds of jobs, because we're going to take, and this is what he says, every community needs to define its global job-creating assets. That's what every community needs to be about. The, 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 I, I started promoting this about a year and a half ago. The chamber has adopted this, and there's a whole leadership group working on this. I would encourage you, please, to read this. You can, you can go to the end of it and read the conclusions and get the get the, the gist of it, but you can also, once you do that, I hope you'll go, I need to read this. But let me show you a couple of things. Again, this shows you what this just shows you what China's up to. And you look at 2050 and you see. E7, the, the red or whatever, crimson, we don't want to talk about crimson this week, uh, is what 2050 looks like competitively. We're in a war. We're in a jobs war. Chinese intend to win. The, what is, the, I'm going to do a couple of these just to kind of show you. What is the gold of the 21st century? Well, I can tell you this. We're sitting on top of a gold mine in Memphis. The gold of the 21st century is water. And the resource that we have here is incredible. And honestly, and I'm working with Mayor Wharton on this right now. He is on board on this. I've talked to Governor Haslam about this. We are going to develop a water strategy. We're sitting on 100 trillion gallons of water. And just to give you an idea of what that means, one, it's a lifestyle. We, We drink water like, you know, my kids get home from college and they go, man, I need some water. Because there, there are places where the water's not that good, so there's a livability issue. But let me tell you what the real issue is: New Core Steel just invested another hundred million dollars in our community. That's on that's three fifty they put in. There are other companies, Riviana Foods. There are uh, KTG. Why are we, Memphis? Get this now. Most of you will go. I don't know if he's telling the truth. Twenty, check me. I'm asking you to check the facts. 2011, Memphis, according to the Brookings and according to the Gallup, was the number three highest job creating a market in the United States of America in the midst of a recession. Why? Manufacturing jobs. One ton of steel, one ton of steel takes 60,000 gallons of water to produce it. The clothes, your shirt, and your pants... 2,000 gallons of water to produce that. Water is essential to a manufacturing process and we're sitting on top of a gold mine for jobs creation in manufacturing. Let me give you another example. I was down at a meeting in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta at Lake Lanier. And I promise you, when I was down there, you could walk across Lake Lanier. It was so dry, so empty. Do you realize that the city of Atlanta, six million people, was within 30, 45 days of not having water for the people to drink? 99% of Atlanta's water comes from the surface. From, they got to have rain. We're sitting on top of 100 trillion gallons of water. That is a global job creating asset we can create jobs for and and i'm promoting and asking people it's not just about using the water it's also about how do we use it to preserve it and manage it and to make sure that we're marketing it well this is a global job creating asset it's so important that it uh that it is that it is called there's a there's a professor in Oregon at Oregon State or Oregon who's written a paper and this is what he wrote he said why would a professor in in Oregon talk about memphis water he said quote what saudi arabia is to oil memphis is to water how many of you knew that that kind of asset and we're sitting on top of it and it and again that's a leadership this is is this not seeking the welfare of the community is this not something we're called to in our daily work we got educational institutions there to my knowledge there's never been a real effort to bring them all together they they talk but we but look at what they did in North Carolina by taking the research triangle that was a myth that became reality because leadership hello said this is what we're going to do they created a mythical place between three universities now we don't have duke of north carolina and wake forest but we got some pretty good places the university of memphis is way underrated for what it what we have in this community it is a job creating asset same thing let me give you just a couple more new york times In August of 2010 said that the U.S. by 2042 will be a minority-majority country. I would submit to you that by 2020 there's not a major city in America will not be a majority-minority city. Charlotte elected a black mayor last year. We did it in 1991, and I would submit to you that we are so far down the road that most of us don't realize there are a lot of goodwill people who are working hard and, 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 and doing all they can to make this a better place. It is not Mayberry anymore. My wife told me you shouldn't say that. I think it's because she likes Mayberry so much, but she said the, the world is not like, it's not about a bunch of us. It's about how as followers of Jesus, and think about this. Jesus, was he says every tribe and every nation, they're going to all be in heaven. So if they're all going to be there, why don't we learn to live together now? Why don't we learn to live to live in community? This is one of the. If you're a follower of Jesus in this community, this is one of the most wonderful places for the gospel to work. To show how we love one another. If we love one another as believers in Jesus Christ, across race, across ethnicity, across economics, if we would get off off our seat. And we would say, "Lord, help me to be Your follower. Let me be a faithful follower. Let me be one who seeks the welfare of this city. Who then prays for it?" He's saying, "You know, my tendency, oh Lord, I pray for the welfare, oh Lord." And He said, "No, seek the welfare and pray for it." It's a it, it, to me, it was astonishing when I read that, and I thought, "Uh oh, that means I got to do something." And that doesn't mean that you got to you've got to be. Game changer big time. You've got a place. God, do you believe God's had a destiny for you? He's got you exactly where he wants you, and there's something he wants you to do in that place this day, exact time that would build the kingdom in this city. Do we believe that? I had a guy a few years ago. This is a number of years ago. And I was talking to him about this, and he said, a Christian guy, committed Christian guy. Said, we were talking, it was a gentle conversation, and I said something about this, and he said, you know, if I did that, I couldn't play golf three times a week. I said, well, that's reasonable. I thought to myself, I didn't say it, You, I have some thoughts that I should express sometimes. I said to myself, I said, Nothing wrong with golf. Don't misunderstand me. But it's hard to launch to heaven from the green. It's okay to play golf, but it's a matter of what are your priorities? Who are you following? I have nothing against golf. But it's a question of, are we followers of Jesus in such a way that we believe that he's appointed our time and our place, that we have a destiny, and that, that, that we, have, we have to decide. And like Dag, Dag Hammerskall said, that it's what I choose. I can't control where I am, if that's true, but I can not choose what I do. And it's a question of if we decide. And then if you look at this scripture, and I'll quit on this. Look at what he tells. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. and He says, develop your city. Develop your city. I put you in exile there. Take wives. Work with your families. be, Be engaged. Get into the middle of your community. Ask God, what would you have me do? And he says, raise your families. These are exiles. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Don't move to Fayette County. Nothing wrong with Fayette County. But we are to be in the city. And it says, it's interesting after that statement, it says, but seek. What's the but there for? He's saying, be involved in your family. Be involved in your business. That's important as you're in this place. But... Don't just sit there and go, oh, I've got my family and I've, I've got my bank account and, I, and, I, and, I, and I've built this wealth. And He says, but seek the shalom, the peace, the commonwealth. Uh, be concerned about the people on Looney, in Binghampton, South Memphis, in 38109. Do, do our hearts beat like God's heart for the people of this community? It's our time and it's our place. Do we believe that? Will we be faithful followers? Will we choose to go through Samaria? Do we desire for the soundness and the well-being and the safety of this generation and the next one? is that our heartbeat are we willing to be salt and light in this time and place salt and light that's our I think that's our call that's the threefold mission of Jesus to preach and teach and to heal and the question is will I follow Jesus this day in this place Wherever He wants me to go, let's pray. Lord, I thank You for these men in this room and what they represent—is Your followers and people who are, are willing to look at their lives and think deeply about Your kingdom. Just pray that for all of us, that like we would be good soil, that you would have mercy upon us while we've heard these, but to open our eyes and our ears that we can hear and understand. That we would seek the welfare of this community, that that would be the heartbeat, that we would hear your call who is my neighbor. And we would not be comfortable until we've stepped out and followed you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.